Today, we travel beyond the wind door. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to Beyond the Window with your friends Greg and Toby. Except not, because instead of Dr. Toby being present, we instead have a couple of guest stars and this cardboard cutout of Toby. Say hello to the fans, Flat Toby. I exist to derail the conversation. You said it, Flat Toby. Now let me explain. <laughs> this was an unexpected show. For those of you that are aware... We still eventually have a show planned in the works called Greg's Who Homework, where a friend of the show, Kevin Vahey, was going to catch me up on Doctors 12 and 13 by sharing 10 of their best episodes. So I already had a bit of the doctor on the brain when I found out that the new 14th Doctor specials with David Tennant and Catherine Tate were going to be available on D+. As previously alluded to, I have been out of the Doctor Who game for a while, having stopped with the last episode of Matt Smith's Doctor. And as much as I was interested in picking back up with Jodie Whittaker, it was just neither convenient nor did I have anyone to watch Doctor Who with, like I did for Eccleston, Tennant, and Smith. So it just fell by the wayside. But with them returning to a favored pairing of Tennant and Tate, and having it easily available to watch, I figured, wow, why not? I ended up thoroughly enjoying the specials and the reveal of Shudi Gatwa's 15th Doctor, enough that I went onto the School of Movies Discord to talk about it. As we'll get into, there was some serious resonance I felt in regards to certain topics brought up in other media, especially since Toby and I were hot off the culmination of our coverage of Marvel's Spider-Man 2, better known to listeners as Spider-Man Proving Ground. So I was pretty hype. And then I got into a brief argument regarding developments in the third special. And I basically proposed a long overdue crossover with the fellow I was chatting with. And thus was born Beyond the Window, the 14th Doctor specials episode. But now I hear you ask, why no Toby? He's a big Doctor fan. Well, the thing is, he hasn't watched the specials yet. As you may have heard elsewhere, he's got a bunch of stuff on his plate, and I wanted to do this episode while it was fresh. So he told me to go ahead and run this without him, which means I needed someone equally as Whovian to take his place. With that, let's introduce our contestants. Coming back from this spectacular episode's we have video game geek and stealth time lord, Kevin Vahey. Salutations. And joining us in Beyond the Window for the first time is fellow member of the Fireside Alliance and host of his own podcast, Recorded Tomorrow. I also welcome back time travel expert and New Century collaborator, Jesse Ferguson. Allons-y. Jesse, Kevin, it's great to have you Greg. here. Greg. Great to be I here again, Greg. Thank you. 
I don't know where this episode is going to take us. I prepared a few notes and of mostly <laughs> going off emotions and vibes. So to start us off, if you could give us a little background on your various history with Doctor Who. Let's start with Jesse. Sure. So I tried to watch Doctor Who starting with Chris Eccleston twice and failed mm. twice. I got a couple of episodes in and just it was too silly and I couldn't get into it. I just kept bouncing off. And it wasn't until I was staying with some friends for an extended period of time. And I had mentioned this and they were big Whovian Doctor Who fans. And uh, they basically tied me to a chair and made <laughs> me watch the entire first season. Good. At which point I got it. Like I understood and I was on board and I continued to, to watch. Silly. Yeah. I continued to watch the rest of the series. Um, it turns out, I think it was just Eccleston as the doctor just didn't vibe with me. I didn't mm. really like him as the character. And it took the entire first season for me to come around to, uh, okay, no, I get it now. I understand him. I'm, I'm vibing with him. And then they immediately changed him and <laughs> he became a different person. If it's any consolation, Jesse, Eccleston is playing the Doctor again in Big Finish Audios, and they've gotten a chance to expand his character more in there before Series 1, so in oh, terms cool. of the chronology, so that might help you a bit. Nice. Yeah, and, I, and the I, writers I have really done their homework, out. too. So. Yeah, so I have watched everything from then on, not necessarily on time. Um, mm. I tried to, but different availability and timing and scheduling had made it difficult. Um, mm -hmm. I watched... The first season with Jodie Whittaker in real time. I watched the first couple of Peter Capaldi seasons in real time and then kind of fell off and then binged all of them until the next Doctor and then kind of did the same thing with uh, with Jodie Whittaker leading up to, to these. And then I watched these specials three-ish times each to prepare for the show. So I'm <laughs> I'm ready to go. I first became familiar with Doctor Who when my mother got some DVDs of some classic Doctor Who for <laughs> Christmas one year. And the stories she had gotten were John Pertwee's debut story, Spearhead from Space, which is the third Doctor, a Tom Baker story called uh, The Robots of Death, and then The Five Doctors. We watched a little bit of Spearheads from Space, and I wasn't totally enamored with it. And then it wasn't until years later that I caught the David Tennant episode Gridlock on BBC America and on a whim. And I was just like, ah, what the hell? I need something to watch. You know, and just watching that scene where Tennant is going down through the motorway while heroic music is playing, I was like, wow, this is engaging shit. <laughs> and I just kept watching and stuff and just and then I watched series four as uh, like through certain means, shall we say, mm -hmm. as it was airing in the UK before it even aired here in the States. I won't go into detail. And then I started watching the uh, the specials that made that led up to Tenant regenerating into Smith. And then I watched series five as it was coming out and stuff. I tried to catch it, keep up with uh, Capaldi as he was coming out, uh, up as well. Same with Jody to some extent. These specials I've watched like at least twice in the lead up to doing this podcast, actually. Although after Miss Smith's first season, I started listening more into the audio dramas from Big Finish Productions and mm -hmm. getting familiar with the classic doctors that way, because my knowledge of classic who is kind of almost limited to the audios more than anything, really, because they take a sensibility that Russell T. Davies brought to the new series, which was that 
these characters are nuanced and complicated and not just mm -hmm. one-dimensional ciphers, you know, and they have, were applying them to not only the classic doctors, but the classic companions as well, by giving some backstory stuff to the classic companions stuff. Not that they didn't have backstory stuff in the classic stuff, but it wasn't considered necessary in those days, apparently, mm -hmm. to have that. And it wasn't until Ace came along that it actually kind of became necessary, arguably. Now, you, so. because of your history with Big Finish, yeah. I'm curious if you know, and I'm forgetting the actor's name, I'm sure you'll remember, yeah. I know that the eighth Doctor, Paul McGann. Only, Paul McGann, yeah, he had like the one movie. Yeah, but he had a TV movie that came out in 1996, which was like seven some odd years after mm -hmm. the classic series ended in 1989. But when he did his scene <sighs> on the lead up to uh, the big 50th anniversary Day of the Doctor stuff, yeah, um, he made a bunch of references, and I was wondering if some of those might have been stuff that he did with Big Finish rather than stuff from the uh, movie. Well, he does name the com names of the people he mentions before he sips the potion that he receives from uh, the Sisterhood of uh, mm -hmm. Karn, which is from a really great Tom Baker story called The Brain of Morbius. Mm. Um, very Frankensteinish. That's why I dig it. Those people he name drops, um, Charlie, Carries, Thames, and Molly, those are all names of people he's had as companions at the time that story aired. He's since mm -hmm. gone on to have a lot, a few, a lot more companions mm -hmm. in the audios, uh, and including reuniting with some older ones as well. There's even a, a trilogy of audios in their main monthly range where he takes on Mary Shelley as a traveling companion. The, as in Frankenstein mm. author Mary Shelley, yeah, yeah, yeah. which was kind of a, a payoff to a running gag that started through the audios, starting with Eight's very first audio story, where it opens with him basically in the TARDIS library looking for the TARDIS manual to, because he thinks something's wrong with the TARDIS and he wants to find out what's going on. And he's happening upon different stories, uh, different books that he has, and he's like, oh, the... I guess the Christie, the first printing of the murder of Alger Ackroyd. I'll read that later. You know, and then he comes across a, a printing of something Mary Shelley wrote. I, was, I think that was maybe a precursor to Frankenstein or something that she wrote while she was with Lord Byron and some other folks. And, you know, as part of some kind of meet and greet thing. I'd, it's it's actually something that happened in history, apparently. So, mm. And she, he's Isn't reading it, reciting it aloud and saying, and saying, oh, Mary, what, why couldn't you tell the real story of what happened? <laughs> oh, dear. You know, implying that they had a relationship of sorts, not like relationship relationship, but like yeah, they, exactly. they had interacted in some way. And so references to Mary Shelley became sprinkled throughout different audio stories that that writer, Alan Barnes, had wrote, you know, to as a little gag. And then they finally decided to pay it off in another monthly story that showed how Mary Shelley and the Eighth Doctor met. And then it ended on them uh, starting their travels together. And then that trilogy happened like a couple of years after the fact. So in terms of the timeline of the eighth doctor mary traveling with the eighth doctor was before she met he met his first audio companion that we meet which was a wonderful spirited young lady named charlie pollard it was mm. just very go-getter very kind of tomboyish but self-described edwardian adventurous and she's just she's a bit divisive in some parts of the fandom mm. but i think she's wonderful although personally my favorite eight companion is um lucy miller because she's 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 also really feisty and spunky, and in some ways, I think she's also a precursor to Donna in terms of mm. 
and companions uh, sassing the fuck out of the doctor <laughs> and the doctor just being, Oh Lord, what have I gotten myself into? You know, or in some yeah. cases, sassing right back. Divisive is definitely going to be a word that's going to come up a bunch in our discussion. <laughs> I, I'm sure it will specials, be. But, that's um, fine. I'm cool with that. But that's, I think, enough I've, lead up, or, although so, I'm sure we'll get into yeah, other aspects. A bit more rambly than I intended. It's perfectly okay. <laughs> I did ask you a question, and you gave me plenty of context. Yeah, exactly. Of course. As someone that yeah. loves context and loves giving context. Oh, trust me, I'm the same way, bro. <laughs> I'm sorry, what were you about to say, Jesse? No, just a uh, fun fact. The 14th Doctor, I think, Jodie Whittaker. 13th, actually. 13th. 13th, okay. But, yeah. Also hung out with Mary Shelley for a little while. Mm. Yep, she did. Doctor Who has crossed over with a lot of famous characters over the years. But I gotta say, if I had a chance to hang out with Mary Shelley... You better believe I'd do it twice. What do you think about that, Flat Toby? Flirtatious undertones of my co-host. Gee Willikers, Flat Toby, not in front of the guests. I like to kind of reconcile it in my head that, you know, that the timelines kind of got shunted around due to the time war, and that's why Mary doesn't remember the Doctor in any way, and why 13 can't mention the whole thing with Oh, God. It's like That's how uh, I Star Trek, it. how they yeah. basically just say, yeah, people have gone back in time and messed with the timeline so many times that continuity doesn't make much. Like, you can't expect things to hold together. And that's why, String you know, cheese. the technology on Discovery looks better than the technology in the next generation and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind the fact that, you know, sets are built a lot better nowadays in terms of yeah. genre shows. Not even if you just like you're they're better at building sets, but they can make it look older than it actually is. Exactly. Um, but, but anyway, okay. Anyway. So I would say like the fact that it was easily accessible to me did play into why I decided, okay, let's just go ahead and watch the specials. But my first entry into Doctor Who was I think Around the time when Series 4 was airing in real time. Mm -hmm. But that meant that I had to go back and rewatch a whole bunch of other stuff. And I don't think I got to see the end of Season 4 in real time. But I was watching the start with Matt Smith's Doctor. At least as it was made available to me on BBCA in relative real time. Which means that tenants run with... Catherine Tate with Donna was very significant to me. And like, so when I heard that it was going to be the two of them to get back together and it felt like they were going to address the way that series ended, which is like, even for deep lovers of Dr. Who can bring up some difficult feelings that that was pretty much like the ace in the hole, which ensured, okay, I want to see how Davies is going to come back and address this. Um, so let us begin with discussions of the Star Beast. Sometimes I think there's something missing. Like I had something lovely. And it's gone. I lie in bed thinking. What have I lost? No other's friend. Called Donna Noble. I had to wipe her memory to save her life. No! 
If she remembers me, she will die. So what happens next? The spaceship crashes right in front of her. It's like she's drawing us in. What the hell? We've got a bloody Martian in the shed. Don't look. Maybe. Oh, here we go again. I don't believe in destiny, but if destiny exists, then it is heading for Donna Noble. Ah, which, yes. Which even starts in, in a way that's unusual for Doctor Who, where it's like someone decided, okay, let's not just put us directly into the action. We need <laughs> to have Tennant and Tate specifically getting us back up to speed on where we left this face of the doctor, as he say, he himself puts it, and mm-hmm. also Donna in terms of like, oh yeah, it's been years. Like she got married, and there was like a whole the, like there were elements of catching back up with Donna during the episode itself, which I had forgotten. Like that he had arranged for Donna to win the lottery, and then he's right. like, where did all the money go and everything. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it's my favorite of the three specials. Like, they're all very good. Um, but I think the three of us will get into potentially complex emotions about the Star Beast in specific. But the more I watched it, and as I was seeing things play out, and how it just gets right to the point, being like, oh, yeah, I'm back in London with this face on. And he immediately runs into Donna. <laughs> It's right. like, oh, puts the box back. Yeah, like, that's, oh. yeah, that's a thing with Russell D. Davies. He just wants to throw the doctor right into the lion's den, right? Mm-hmm. Right up from the off. But, Gotta respect him for that sometimes. Yeah, exactly. I have um, like a, a mad respect for what it feels like coming back to Doctor Who after all this time. Because Davies is not shy about addressing the things that he wants to address. And right. that's true throughout all of these episodes and i'm sure it's going to be true going forward yeah davies does not have a a subtle bone in his body i know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards if there's some some kind of social issue he wants to address in his shows he will hammer it home in the most unsubtle way possible come hell or high water and frankly when it comes to certain issues like the fact that donna has a daughter who's transgender Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely Especially and, nowadays, given the, and, and I, I, I think that's really bold that he decided to do that, given the anti-trans climate of the UK going on right yes. now. Well, yes, I mean, absolutely. other parts of the world, but especially the UK, due to certain people we will not mention. Mm. But you know, yeah. Yasmin Finney playing Rose, mm-hmm. the introduction of Shirley Ann Bingham. Oh, she's that, delightful. She, she, she actually played a companion in a Sixth Doctor audio story yes. before she played this character, too. That is something I was actually going to get into, is that I wanted to make sure that I was referring to the characters and the actors playing them by name. So I, I put up a list. And the minute yeah. I looked into Ruth Matterly, I, I don't know yeah. how you pronounce yeah. her last name. I, I was having less trouble figuring out how you pronounced Shooty Gotwell's name because I looked up the pronunciation <laughs> of that. But Same. Ruth Madeley, um playing Shirley Ann Bingham, as you said, she plays a character named Hebe Harrison in the Sixth Doctor Adventures with Big Finish. Um, They're more both, recent stuff, though. Yeah, exactly. Both of them. That's one of the more intriguing things right there is that they could have done anything with Ruth Madeley's character with an audio drama, but they chose to have her character also play someone that gets around in a wheelchair, Hebe Harrison does. And as it introduces Shirley here, although it doesn't get into what she's dealing with, Shirley Bingham 
has spina bifida just like the actress and i got to learn a little bit of the lore finding out about what she did before becoming unit's 56th science advisor the information i'm about to share comes from the novelization of the star beast something i hadn't realized they'd created bingham was a neuroscientist partly as a result of her own condition studying treatments and the like in order to further the work on treating spina bifida. Later hired by UNIT because they wanted her to apply her understanding of brains and the nervous system to alien races they had contact with. I do have complicated feelings about centering Bingham's disability as her raison d'etre, in the same way that it can be complicated when it feels like you're reducing anyone's identity to their race sexual orientation, neurodivergence, or disability. But in this case, it also makes sense that she'd want to specialize in something that would make her own life better. Also, as a side note, I have a deep fondness for her northern accent, as it feels like it's calling back to the way others pointed out the Ninth Doctor had a northern accent. When, when you never do thing with anything with Doctor Who, there are plenty of people that just eat up every scene they're in. That's kind of part of the great vibe of Tate and Tennant to begin with. But I absolutely enjoyed any time Shirley was on screen and many other characters as well. But that's also because I just thought it was so cool that the very first member of unit that we meet is a disabled person. And Davies addresses that very well too, where it's like when the when the soldiers are talking to her, it's like, I don't know if we can make accommodation for you, Mom. And she's like, don't make me the problem. Just get it done. And that was very I, I love that as well. Yeah. One thing I also want to mention, like before we get really a little deeper in this, the Star Beast was based off a Fourth Doctor comic book storyline, which also was adapted into oh, a Big cool. Finish audio. And I actually also listened to that audio, too, as prep hmm. for this as well. And it's it's really good. Although it's a whole different, nice. well, beast, mm-hmm. for lack of a way of putting it, than the this story. It's this this also. I have to give full credit where it's due to the the people who are, are on the creative team, Davies and Company, and especially the people who made the title sequence because they actually credited the original writers of the comic book storyline in the titles uh, for the story. Nice. Pat Mills and Dave Gibbons, I believe, are the names mm-hmm. of the people. For those of you that are curious, yes, that is the same Dave Gibbons that did the artwork for Alan Moore's Watchmen. So uh, the fact they went out of their way to uh, actually credit these people, especially when sometimes MCU movies don't always credit their original writers uh, for certain stuff. You know, I mean, I love the MCU, but that's why I'm calling it out. Just full respect. And it also gives them clear, in my opinion, gives them clearance to adapt other stuff from the Doctor Who comics, like this one character called Frobisher. Before you ask, Frobisher was a penguin. No, I'm not explaining that. Just look it up. It's marvelous. Or this other, like, gang- frog gangster character whose uh, name is, like, Josiah Dogbolter or whatever. I can't remember the full name, but, you know, just get it. The, the fact they are now incorporating elements from the comics into the, the, the show now, I would love to see more of those characters from the comics because I've read some of those comics and they're just wonderful. I mean, it's a resource. You should take advantage of the exactly. resources available. And, but and you... Davies' first run on the show was how he had a kind of heightened comic booky feel anyway. 
So mm. it kind of yeah. makes sense that he kind of bring that back by adapting a very well-known comic storyline for his first story back as showrunner, in my opinion. You mentioned the opening titles. Yeah. Those I are really, gorgeous, aren't they? Yeah, I really like the opening titles. Like I definitely the, the Murray Gold's new arrangement for the theme gave me chills and I was like, mm. I want that as my fucking green tone. <laughs> I mean, the opening arrangement has always been very ear-catching. I mean, it's obviously using so many years of, like, these are the sounds that we associate with Doctor Who. But even the visuals, like, the way that they adjust how the, you know, the uh, TARDIS wormhole goes and the way it opens up on a starscape. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Just feels very... It it felt very Star Trek in places (laughs) where it's just a beautiful visual to go with everything else also very dynamic in terms of the the TARDIS we tend to know is very zippy and everything like that but there was a a weight to this visual of the TARDIS in that opening sequence that kind of stood out especially the spirit where he's spinning and you see little skids on the little clouds and everything apparently according to Russell T Davies that's actually going to be a plot point in a future episode for it Mm. the little little thing that's like that's like sparkling like that on the Mm. as the tar spins around the vortex so I don't know if he's talking out his ass on that but if it becomes a plot point great that'd be cool because I'd love Davies' attention to detail like that if he's if that's the case right. so just um, brief thoughts on the Star Beast from both of you. Jesse, I, I know that Kevin and I have been talking the most. Please, yeah, sorry. How, how do you feel about this first episode? I will go and say without hesitation that this is my favorite of the three. Um, oh, really? Okay. Spoilers, okay. I like them in descending order as they go. Hmm. Yeah, but I found back like Donna was always my favorite of the companions, especially mm. in the tenant years. And I, like many people, felt that she got done dirty and mm, big time. Uh, was, yeah. And so it was it was really nice to see that little piece of closure, just the the emotionality of the of the finality of this episode just like hit me like I was the target for this mm, and same. they hit me square in the square in the heart piece mm. um and yep. uh, i agree i thought it was really cool uh to give donna a uh trans daughter i thought that was really neat mm. full understanding and acknowledgement of the fact that these are th- you know three cis white dudes talking about you know this piece of uh inclusion and and diversity so i can't really speak to how well it was handled it seemed good to me but i'm not in that so i i have several trans friends who i've talked to about it who watched the episodes and they feel like davies really handled it well especially that scene where those two boys are dead naming rose Mm -hmm. they they felt uncomfortable with that scene because they experienced that themselves you know but they also agreed that with davies assessment that they felt it was necessary to show that this kind of shit happens in real life mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you, you can't have a trans character and not just expect them to just be like oh happy all the time because that's unrealistic you have to show the true reality for better or for worse you have to show the reality of how trans people exist in today's world right until things at least in order to try to encourage things to get better mm-hmm and he even okay. consulted with other trans people, like this one British writer by the name of Juno Dawson, who's I've I've seen some of her work. She's actually really great. And even she thought that Davies handled it well. So, you know. Yeah, that's good to hear. 
It honestly makes me think a lot about the evolutionary process of Susie Izzard, better known as Eddie Izzard, a UK comedian who got really big on the American stage as of the late 90s and has gone on to perform worldwide. Izzard had a hard enough time selling herself as a transvestite, as in merely a man that enjoys wearing women's clothing. Only now, 30 years after the first unrepeatable stage show, can she finally come out as gender-fluid, accepting both male and female pronouns, even if she prefers female ones. Contrary to what you may be thinking, it's not all roses being a transvestite, you know? <laughs> it's not that, you know, people say, oh, you transvestites, living off the state, they say. <laughs> Why don't you just get back to Russia? So, what's in Russia? Oh, I don't know, a load of transvestites, man. But in Russia, they say, when you get back to wherever you were told to get back from when you, before you... Yeah. But you do get a certain amount of stick that goes with it. You know, certain people in the street give me a hard time, but they're, they're dickhead men, usually, and they hang out in groups of five. <laughs> I think that's because they have a fifth of a personality each, so they but anyway, they do it. They hang out at Leicester Square, actually, in groups of five. And they're just there, just waiting to shout at people. You know, it must be a sad fucking life. We say, oh, five o'clock, but they get out and shout at people. <laughs> ah! Oh, that feels good. And they do, they just shout at me. Oh, it's bloke in a dress! Bloke in a dress! <laughs> bloke in a dress! Ha <laughs> I told him. Uh, and he agreed. Uh, he is bloke in a dress. And, uh, I said something more vitriolic, shouldn't I? Don't I? And they shout at women as well. I don't know why they shout at women. Oi, darling! Oi, darling! <laughs> Oi, darling! <laughs> I told her too. Yes. Well, like, when I was a kid, I mean, because I knew I was TV. TV is the abbreviation, transversal TV, by the way. Which is a bit confusing with television being TV as well. But, um... <laughs> but when I was a kid, I realised it was TV and I didn't tell other kids at school. On a cunning survival plan I worked out. Yes. <laughs> Don't tell other kids and survive school. That was my plan. <laughs> I just thought if I was five and saying, look, guys, I happen to be TV. And I just thought I'd explain this to you because I thought you could deal with this information in a positive and groovy way. <laughs> I just thought they might say, well, thanks for that information. We'd just like to say, I appreciate it. Uh, grab sticks, lads, let's go! <laughs> That's how difficult it is in the UK for non-cis people. Like I said, it, it sounded good. It, it, it seemed like it was handled well from an outside perspective. It's yeah. good to hear that. I mean, uh, there's also a YouTuber I follow named Jenny Geist, who's a trans woman. And she made a video about how important the trans rep was for that episode of Doctor Who. And it's yeah. really great. Having watched Jenny Geist's video on this, I recommend watching the whole thing. But here's a little clip of it to get a taste. Then, as we follow Donna and Rose home, we learn three more things about the Noble family. One, Rose is trans, as some classmates bully her on the way home. Two, Donna is super supportive, as she's ready to shank a bitch for her daughter. Three, Donna and her own mother don't 100% understand it, as they never really could, but they still love Rose and want what's best for her. This is already neat and refreshing compared to, you know, that other series from my Anglophile childhood. It's sad that something as simple as well-done character establishment for a trans person is so un 
unprecedented, but keep in mind that this is still just set up. I understand that some people have criticisms of the bullies deadnaming her, and I do get it, but I also kinda disagree. In general, I don't think it's inherently wrong to mention a trans character's deadname in media. Don't get me wrong, it can be shitty. I too get frustrated when cis writers make a bio for a trans character and plop their dead name right next to their actual name, but I feel like this standard sometimes gets applied way too generally when, like, dead names still exist. Some people are able to hide them from strangers, and I myself am not exactly in a rush to tell people mine, as transphobes love to weaponize dead names as a tool of disrespect and dehumanization, but not everyone can hide their dead name. While I can understand not loving that Rosa's second scene as her being dead named by bullies, I think it's a pretty relatable and important moment. As a trans person, I watch it and connect to the type of harassment Rose is getting. A cis person can watch it and feel for Donna, who's immediately defensive of her daughter. You could say it's a bit ham-fisted, but when trans issues of this nature are rarely even talked about at all, being direct can be good. Being on the nose can be good. It can be necessary, even. Plus, despite that being her second scene, it's immediately followed by more characterization and setup. We see that she's creative and has a business where she makes toys. Like her mother, she can be lonely, and that makes her empathetic, especially to this random little innocent alien she meets. Like, sure, these are basic character traits, but she's a character who's only going to appear in two to three episodes and has to balance screen time with a doctor and Donna and others. I'd argue she has more context and backstory than most one-off Doctor Who characters, especially with Yasmin Finney's excellent performance that conveys the discomfort, dysphoria, and euphoria of transition in more than just words. Furthermore, the conversation between Donna and her mother in the kitchen is one of my favorite scenes of the entire special. It so realistically portrays how these things can be an adjustment for parents or grandparents as well. Rose's comfort should come first, and they know that, and they love her, and they're learning. Only ten minutes in, and the series is already debunking transphobic rhetoric in a way that cis audiences can understand, and best of all, it's not just set dressing. It's in the service of the story. I was curious, um, because obviously whenever you're dealing with any kind of story involving, I don't want to say minority, a diverse experience, it can be difficult to include, as you say, the good and the bad without it feeling like you're marketing the the pain that comes with it. There have been a lot of people, there's been a lot of uh, divisive commentary on, say, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon mm-hmm. about how some people say that that's good First Nations representation and some saying that it's uh, fetishizing. porn. Yeah, excellent term, yes, oppression porn. Yeah. Uh, or, or but basically just centering their pain rather than centering the positivity in that culture the way something like, as someone Echo. that has experienced, e- yes, yes, I was absolutely <laughs> about to get into Echo. Um, yeah. But again, we're talking Doctor Who, so let's not get too far off track. My friend said that the reason why it also works so well is because they go from a scene of Rose being dead named and Donna basically saying, like, I would burn down the world for you and stuff and mm. supporting her and being like that, to a scene between Donna and her mother, Sylvia, where they're talking about her and, and, and she's Sylvia admits that herself. she slips up sometimes and she mm. worries that she's going to, if she's going to worry, she's worried about slipping up, which I can totally relate to yes. because. One of my very best friends I've known since high school, her name is Millie, and she's trans. When I was first came aware of her being trans, I slipped up really bad. Mm. But to her credit, because of the fact we'd known each other so well, she didn't think I was being malicious about it. And she was like, so cool. Take your time. I know mm-hmm. it's a big adjustment for you. 
It's not you know? the kind of thing that we have to deal with every day. And as exactly. long as we keep working to be better about this sort of thing, I think yeah. that's the most exactly uh, important. You yeah. know, don't be too defensive. Just keep keep it in mind and uh, think before you speak in certain right. cases. You know, it's, and, it's, and it's, it's just work. It's what you, the work you have to do. Three important words for me in terms of that kind of thing. Listen and learn. Mm. That's very important. So, Jesse, as this is your favorite episode, mm -hmm. the next question I have, and this was going to be a question for both of you in general, but was like, because it's so heavy on discussion of trans themes, like not just in terms of Rose specifically, but also when they call out 14 on making sure to ask what the Meeps pronouns are or how they mm -hmm. want to be addressed. Uh, I'm curious how you felt about, you know, because it's Davies, because as you say, the man has no chill, it's, it's not subtext. Do you feel that parts of the writing of this episode, when Davies is trying to make a point, was too clumsy? Or alternately, even if it was, does that just feel in keeping with Doctor Who for you? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely heavy handed and... Mm. Did you just assume my gender is mm -hmm. has been memified for, you know, for for a decade at this point? It's not like that. You, there there wasn't going to be like a guffaw there. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also something that a person who is conscious about gender would say to somebody when encountering an alien race, you know, mm -hmm. somebody, you know, somebody in that situation, somebody who is constantly being misgendered and dead named is going to be hypersensitive to that and is going to be defensive of other people, other people, other, you know, entities that they've felt like, you know, they are taking that they're sort of protective of. That's yeah. one of the things they're going to protect them from are the things that have harmed them personally. So I, I don't like it was it was very obvious. Like you said, it was very heavy handed, but I don't think it was a problem. I don't I didn't mm -hmm. have an issue with it. Um, it's either. probably the kind of, you know, ham fisted, quote unquote, woke writing that I would do because I don't know <laughs> better and I'm also not subtle. So, uh, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was fine. I mean, in the original comic storyline, the Meep, uh, who was otherwise known as Beep the Meep in the comics, which is wonderfully referenced in that line of, <laughs> I am the Beep of all the Meeps. The Meep is actually just strictly a he, totally mm -hmm. masculine. And they, and I guess Davies, in the attempt to try to make it a little more inclusive, decided mm -hmm. to make it more like just the Meep is just the Meep. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And speaking of the Meep, I have to say, very immaculate casting to get Miriam Margulies. So oh, yeah. I always I'm, been a fan of her and I love the fact she was cast. <laughs> the name is familiar to me, but I don't actually know who she is. And I didn't have time to do research. Professor Sprout in Harry Potter. That's one ah, I remember from. Uh, okay. She was also. Oh, have you seen the 1986 Little Shop of Horrors? I've seen parts of it. It's been a very long you, time. You remember that scene with uh, Steve Martin's dentist character and Bill Murray's um Mm. dentist patient there's a nurse in there where steve martin asks does that have an appointment and she and the nurse replies ask it i'm off duty that's her <laughs> she was okay. also in a lot uh, in a couple seasons of blackadder and just mm. absolutely and she's also unapologetically lesbian as well ah uh, oh well okay then <laughs> she's very butch mm -hmm. <laughs> in a wonderful way 
I love her. So she's just one of those seminal, like, she's been around forever. Oh, and, yes. Okay. She, she's a wonderful comedic presence. And just, like yeah. I said, very well cast as um, the Meep. As soon as um, I heard she was playing the role, I was like, perfect. Jesse just shared a picture of her on Discord. Yep, that's her. Oh, <laughs> um, okay. yeah. As, as soon as you see that picture, Greg, you're going to be like, oh, oh, yeah, I knew who that is. <laughs> I was in general, very happy with a lot of the other diversity that all three of these specials included mm -hmm. um, that just sort of goes by unremarked, like the fact that uh, one of the unit squad commanders, one of them is yeah. very clearly Sikh. In the third special, we have Colonel Ibrahim, brilliant there. And of course, as we already mentioned, Ruth Madeley as someone that's disabled. Uh, and I'm sure that there's other stuff that I'm forgetting along the way, too. But to get back to the original question, one of the first things that I saw as regards the specials, which is partly what encouraged me to see the Star Beast, was that one moment towards the end where Donna is making that. That's something a male presenting Time Lord would never understand. And yeah. someone like put that on Twitter, and I think you retweeted it, Kevin, which is how I knew about it. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to figure out how I felt about that line, because... <laughs> I, I didn't have any problem with that. I took it mm -hmm. as Donna and Rose taking the piss out of him, which mm -hmm. is what Donna always did. So mm -hmm. I just took it as him just sure just making a little joke about his the fact that you know in his past incarnation when he had that face he was a little more prideful than he was uh, uh, prideful mm. whereas this time he's uh, because he's had the experiences of going through the what the 11th doctor went through the 12th doctor went through and what 13 went through you know he's a little more humbled it's like he got therapy yeah no yeah. i kind of i, I kind of get it from that standpoint <laughs> i i would agree that the doctor in general tends to be a certain like, all Rash. the Doctors are a little bit different. Yeah, all the Doctors are a little bit different. But most of the Doctors' incarnations have always felt like someone that has a little bit too much ego at times and will buy into their own legend, forgetting just how often out of control things are. Of course, part of that is facade, braggadocio, specifically in order to get others to back down. But it doesn't change the fact that after being the hero has defeated countless more powerful opponents, he understandably believes in himself a little too deeply. Because he feels he has to. Hello. The Dalek stratagem fears completion. The fleet is almost ready. You will not intervene. Oh, really? Why is that then? We have your associate. You will obey or she will be exterminated. No. Explain yourself. I said no. What is the meaning of this negative? It means no. But she will be destroyed. No. Because this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to rescue her. I'm going to save Rose Tyler from the middle of the Dalek fleet, and then I'm going to save the Earth, and then, just to finish off, I'm going to wipe every last stinking Dalek out of the sky! But you have no weapons, no defenses, no plan! Yeah. And doesn't that scare you to death? Because there are laws, there are laws of time. Once upon a time, there were people in charge of those laws, but they died. 
They all died. Do you know who that leaves? Me! It's taken me all these years to realise the laws of time are mine. And they will obey me! Bad news, everyone! Cos guess who? Ha! They sent you lot, you're all whizzing about. It's really very distracting. Could you all just stay still a minute? Because I am talking! What Clara said about not taking revenge. Do you know why she said that? She was saving you. I was lost a long time ago. She was saving you. I've done my best. But I strongly advise you to keep out of my way. You'll find that it's a very small universe when I'm angry with you. Hello. I'm the doctor. Basically, run. And I can see why the doctor's ego would definitely get in the way of pondering the idea of giving up that power. Like, why right. would you? It's so central. How and could would, you? But honestly, it was just the male presenting part that just got under my skin just a little bit. Because I, I can see why. And again, um, I'm used to jokes being made at the expense mm -hmm. of men. I just laugh them off at this point, mm -hmm. especially when they're calling men out on their foibles, for lack of a way of putting it. Mm -hmm. <sighs> you know, honestly, if it weren't for if there weren't so many examples of this being a masculine problem over a feminine problem, mm -hmm. like as the saying goes, if there were a level playing field, it would be one thing. There isn't a level playing field, so you just kind of have to like give it to them as far as that's yeah. concerned. That's that's how I feel pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Happy to take my hits, as it were. <laughs> exactly. Um, that's another one of those the, the lines that is, you know, a bit ham fisted, but again, I'll allow it. I'm or, I'll allow it, Jesus. Um, <laughs> see, you know, see, there we go, right there. That's exactly it's exactly the point. Yeah, it, it didn't bother me so much. Um again, just as you've said it you know, let people take their shots. We're uh, insulated by privilege and can can take that. I do wonder if we'll have a bit more. Well, I mean, I guess we've already seen uh, spoilers for the for the fourth special, a bit more feminine energy in mm. the doctor, you know, mm. now that he's male presenting again, but has gone through the experience of being a woman, if that'll, you know, temper and, and alter and and update his behavior which again like i said we've already seen it has to some extent yeah i think mm -hmm. it's going to be complicated because if i'm correct shudigatwa is gay and i uh, think I, he described himself as queer he didn't specifically say gay oh, okay saying. all right yeah. interesting but yeah. i think that there was some definite queer energy coming off of his portrayal oh yeah in the fourth special i i, I dug sure. it frankly i'm saying this mm -hmm. is a straight guy i really dug it <laughs> he's great i'm so excited they even well of course again because davies was writing it they al already alluded that they were going to go in that direction from the like the start of wild blue yonder is like was it me or was isaac newton hot he was wasn't he he was so hot Oh, is that who I am now? Well, it was never that far from the surface, mate. <laughs> right. There you go. 
I mean, I mean, he already, I mean, he already kind of implied that a little bit too in one of Tennant's episodes back when he was in the first era, where he was, mm-hmm. you know, he says to like his female, "You can kiss me if you want," and then he turns to one of the guys who's with him, "You too, if you want." <laughs> Or even just one moment where he's in, in the fires of Pompeii, where he enters the temple of all those ladies who are holding Donna hostage. And, and they're like, no men are allowed in here. And he's like, it's OK. It's just us girls. It's already kind of been in there. Mm. It's just that it goes so quickly that you don't immediately notice it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Unless you're like listening. And I, I mean, I had to have that second one pointed out to me like, wait, how did I miss that? Mm-hmm. Wow. OK. So in general, Star Beast is an extended setup. Just because this is the beginning of correcting that original wrong done to Donna's character, um, the two of them are not done in sort of hashing everything out throughout the next two episodes. But do you have any further thoughts about where that first special leaves us in terms of um, just feelings or impressions or, or moments you really enjoyed? One of the things that I really liked about this special, like this episode specifically, was that the plot was so light and minimal it made it very clear that this special was not about the star beast mm. the special was about getting donna back mm. and uh, the star beast what like the whole thing with the meep was the backdrop was the setting for the story which was getting donna back yeah it's basically what if et but evil right yeah which was kind of what also they did in the original comic storyline too Mm. i i also have to give full credit to rachel to for her immaculate direction in this episode Mm. too i mean she did great job with some really great 12th doctor episodes (laughs) which we'll get to when we do the doctor who homework thing greg but Uh, yeah but but I'm trying to remember what else. I, I know that her name is familiar to me. She did Tank me. Girl. She was involved with the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise for a while, even directing one of them. She also did a really great um, live-action TV movie version of uh, The Wind in the Willows, where live actors played the animals. Bob Hoskins mm-hmm. played the badger in it, and it was just really great. She did some stuff with the DC uh, TV shows, but yeah, I feel she was like a director on, she, she directs on in England and America because, mm-hmm. you know, has dual okay. citizenship because her parents were English, but she was born in America, apparently. OK. All right. She didn't do anything with the MCU, so I must have been hearing. I would, well, she was actually considered to do the original Captain Marvel, but they still have her on mind for something sometimes. OK. I, I must have been hearing her name from some other place then because well I, I was probably gushing about some of the episodes she directed when Peter Capaldi was the incumbent doctor so mm-hmm. <laughs> including my favorite one of my favorites Heaven Sent which is actually one of my choices for the who homework but mm-hmm. we'll get to that later I feel like Talele's name is so familiar likely because Alex has brought up Tank Girl multiple times for sure I haven't even watched that much of the various TV shows she directed and wouldn't have an eye for her style. She's got a lot of credits, but many of them, aside from Doctor Who, are just ones and twos of long-running shows. On the other hand, she did direct Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, the only Nightmare on Elm Street film I have watched all the way through, and actually have some fondness for. 
but her direction and in fact she even said that she was actually delighted when davies contacted her to direct the star beast because she actually remembers reading the original comic storyline back in the day (laughs) and not only that but also directing david Tennant and catherine tate was a bucket list thing for her and she even posted a picture somewhere of her and Tennant doing the little hand thing that the doctors like to do in promo (laughs) pics yes i even talked with you or maybe i don't know if it was you but like how Tennant in particular is always doing the reaching out to yeah yeah i mean i mean capaldi kind of did it too a little bit Mm -hmm. too i do remember that actually in some of those early promo photos yeah all right i don't remember if eccleston ever did it but (laughs) no eccleston kind of had his own thing going on yeah he, he was a little more reserved i guess nice guy though yeah there are of course other things that we could have talked about the whole two hearts thing that gets brought up in relation to the meep and therefore the threat made at the end but that's likely just another davy style bad wolf setup that won't be important until much later like jesse said the important thing is to get donna back on side so she can help the doctor with what comes next as well as set up a more proper ending for her character arc than Series 4 provided. The only thing that I would add is even though the Tenth Doctor shares a face with the Fourteenth, and therefore there is some familiarity of behavior, there is a marked difference between who Ten was and who Fourteen is. This doesn't feel the same as where Ten began or where he ended up although I'm also not the best person to do a proper analysis of that. But we'll get deeper into the specifics of what kind of Doctor 14 is in a bit. Any further thoughts from you, Flat Toby? Puss a penny in the jaw. Flat Toby, keep up. We actually haven't brought up the West Wing so far today. All right, so, Wild Blue Yonder. There's something so bad the TARDIS ran away. Yes. We go and kick its ass! Oh boy. That, I... like. I, I like to call this Starbeast. episode Midnight 2.0. There's plenty of Doctor Who episodes that use a great deal of horror spice, like this one does. Kevin and I already discussed one of the big ones, the two-parter from Series 1 called The Empty Child and The Doctor Dances. And even Alex and Sharon did an after-school club on the Moffat episode Blink. In this case, though, the Series 4 episode Midnight hinges on paranoia as well as hidden danger. Having refreshed myself on the plot of that episode, I now get the connection Kevin is making. It gave me the same kind of feeling of dread that Midnight did. And mm-hmm. uh, Midnight's one of my favorite Tenant episodes and mm-hmm. because of just how creepy it is for a bottle episode. And the fact that it was pulled off so well at the last minute, practically. Mm-hmm. This feels like Midnight, but on steroids in the best mm-hmm. possible way. I'm not saying it's my favorite of the specials, but it's close. Okay. It's not not his favorite. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it allows them to showcase just how well Tate and Tennant work together because even as they're playing themselves and have only each other to play off of, they now also have to play these darker reflections of them through the no things or the, the not Not things. things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just in terms of the overall creepiness of it, but also we've had all the running and chasing. Now we've slowed things down a little bit in terms of tone and temperament. But it allows us to, especially for those of us that have been away from 
Doctor Who a while, like I have, it introduces some of the stuff we might have missed, including all of the stuff that happened with the Flux, as well as a lot of controversial choices that Chibnall made in terms of shaking up the lore of the Doctor. It made me want to, as I was telling Kevin at one point, do a little research and learn more so that I got the full effect of the stuff that they were referring to in, in terms of changing where the Doctor came from and also discussion of the Flux, which honestly I don't necessarily need because I feel like while Beyonder did a good enough job in alluding to how impactful some of these story decisions were on this version of the Doctor we see now and how that leads into the way things turn out in, in Special 3. I also love the fact that Davies decided to do that instead of what a lot of fans were demanding, which was like, Davies, just ignore it. Just, you ignored the half-human thing from the TV movie. Just do it with this thing, too, because we, mm. we don't like this. I liked it. <laughs> me too me too i loved it too that was a bold move i love when people are willing to take chances with who frankly well, i think it's so, a, a very convenient way to circumvent the 12 regenerations rule mm-hmm. I mean, which they, I mean, they've been running Moffat up against did that to some extent anyway but well still. right but the way he did it was like he got a couple extra mm-hmm. you know we're still gonna run into the issue of like the lore says that time lords get 12 regenerations and ours is on 15 how do we keep going we have to find a new way to keep regenerating now we don't yeah, have to. i mean he already kind of tried to address that a little bit in one episode where, where like one of the other timers was like we don't know how many lives we gave you but i guess that was vague enough that people were willing to ignore it i don't know but then again i pay attention to that shit <laughs> <laughs> well so we're gonna get into this a little bit more when we talk about the giggle But that leads into one of the talking points that I had is that as someone that has not seen as much Doctor Who, but has like sort of paid attention to the general vibe and to the pieces of lore that I have seen and also had like definite opinions on some of the choices made during Davies run or during uh, Moffat's run or just any of that, it feels a little bit weird to get mad about changes to the Doctor Who lore. Because, like, even from the early days of, you know, like, pre-Eccleston, that Doctor Who has always treated its lore with very loose hands. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, that, I think that, I, that's I made, been a given from Jump Street, pretty much. Yeah, definitely. I, I think I made a joke at one point that uh, Doctor Who lore is a brat. All of Europe, you must do this. Well, we're not gonna. Um, we're gonna have a sandwich. And basically, writers will go, no, I'm gonna do something different now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And and you're just gonna have to like it. I mean, one of my favorite things Stephen Moffat said in an interview once was uh, someone had asked, uh, this young fan had asked him, this was like pre the time of the doctor, Matt Smith's regeneration story, where he's like, where the kid had somehow worked out, oh, the doctor's on his last regeneration. And he asked Moffat, how are you going to deal with that? And he smiled warmly and he said, I'm going to do what all the great writers of Doctor Who before me have done. I'm going to make something up. (laughs) And I'm like, perfect respect. (laughs) I mean, I think the best writing 
and I sort of have talked about this before whenever covering anything new century. So uh, you may have heard this before, but like the best writing is when something is able to make both good emotional sense and good logical sense. This is part of the reason why Alex specifically went to you, Jesse, when he was doing a time travel story <laughs> and he was like, okay, we need to nail down the structure of how time travel works in this story down to a T because we don't want to distract anybody from the important emotional stuff. And Wild Blue Yonder does a really good job of making this exploration with Donna and the Doctor and catching up on some of the stuff that he's been through since they mm -hmm. last were together and making that feel emotionally real. Like, I, I can't speak enough to how Capaldi handled the trauma during his run or the previous things that the doctor went through the same with Whitaker and everything like that. I got the feeling like Whitaker was a little more lighthearted in general as to how she handled her exploration with the doctor, at least at the beginning. I don't know how it was during the flux. Yeah. It, it got um, deeper later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it did more intense, especially during flux because uh, they were doing it during COVID and everything. In fact, Trish Chibnall even said the flux was basically a big protracted metaphor for COVID. If you think mm, about it, too, if yeah. you think about it and uh, I, I, hearing that, I'm like, Oh yeah, I like, I actually could appreciate flux a lot more now. <laughs> I mean, we're going to get into how the giggle <laughs> makes a reference to COVID in a bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, just in terms of, I think someone at some point did a, a, a like a small mini comic of like beginning with Eccleston. Hi, I'm the doctor and I'm the last surviving member of my race. And then they move on to Tenet and be like, actually, this is the last thing I remember about what happened to the Time Lords and getting into everything that happened with the final uh, special before he regenerated with Rassilon and everything like that. And then, of course, getting into Matt Smith and everything that happened with Day of the Doctor and then finding out about more things that happened with the Time Lords during 12's run and then everything that happened with the timeless child with 13's run and then it gets to 14 and finally 14 is holding up his hand rendered speechless by the piles on piles of time lord developments some of which literally happened in the special episode the power of the doctor you know the episode that chronologically happened just before the events of the star beast so how much time has 14 even had to recover from that? And the final panel is just 14 sitting in a pub, holding a beer with 15, and saying, It's just so much fucking lore, man. And 15 just pats his shoulder and says, It's okay, mate. It's my problem now. And sure, obviously the comic is meant to be a bit of a joke. But at the same time, it also highlights one of the major themes of the 14th specials. Doc has been through a lot. And the comic is only covering the metric ton of bullshit resulting just from his association with the Time Lords. No one does pain and angst quite like Tennant's performance. Like, it comes yeah. out in The Giggle as well, but it's first here where the no-things... In, in Donna's form, confront him with, like, the thing he won't wouldn't tell Donna. Adam. Yes, exactly. And everything that happened with the Flux. 
You don't know where you're from. How'd you know that? How does anyone know? How does Donna know? Back on Earth, when I was the Doctor Donna, I saw your mind. I've had 15 years without you, and I saw everything that's happened to you since, and oh my God, it hurt. You're saying this to break me down? We haven't stopped to talk. We haven't had a chance. It's always like that with you, running from one thing to the next. I saw it in your head. The flowers. It destroyed half the universe because of me. We stand here now on the edge of creation, a creation which I devastated. So yes, I keep running, of course I do. How am I supposed to look back on that? It wasn't your fault. I know! And then he's just pounding at the goddamn plate in the corridor he's in and crying out. And just like, oh, Holy shit, the feels there. It's a trauma button. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, this episode has grown on me each time I've watched it. I've liked mm. it a little bit more, partially because I can really get those extra emotions in that I may have missed the first time. One of the things that I really liked about this one with the copies of the people that have your memory but don't necessarily have your personality, don't mm-hmm. necessarily, like, aren't necessarily you, was it gave us an opportunity like you said for the doctor and donna both to say the things that they would not say Mm, yes Um, and some of that is because of you know when it's the real doctor as you said like when he's being poked and prodded by not donna into finally exploding out with you know emotional exposition inception style or if it's you know not donna talking to, you know, saying the things that real Donna just wouldn't say because she has kind of that little bit of a filter, little, little, mm. little bit of a filter. <laughs> just a bit. <laughs> you know, that just scrap of tact that would keep her from, from saying some of those things. But we are able to air them and we are able to sort of address and reinforce the running theme throughout these specials, which I really wish that they had done more of even mm. like they they did a pretty good job of of this but i wish they had handled it a little bit differently and a little bit more specifically and that is that the doctor is tired mm-hmm. that he's run ragged that mm-hmm. he is feeling his age finally but that because he feels like he is the only person who can do these things he can never stop mm. and it's taking its toll it gives us those just couple of minutes, couple of instances where he gets to shout that he gets to kind of just cut loose and let his guard down and be vulnerable and be tired and be upset and be disappointed in himself, which is you know not something that he would do under normal circumstances in front of a companion, in front mm-hmm. of unit for example you know Mm -hmm. he's got to be the posturing like i have all of the answers i am the one that people look to and it it was nice to kind of see you know behind the curtains a little bit yeah exactly it's been a long time since i watched the 10th doctor content so i'm not a hundred percent sure if i'm remembering everything correctly 
But listening to Jesse talk, it feels similar to the way that Ten was during the specials leading up to the regeneration into Eleven. It puts a little more weight behind the idea of, as the Day of the Doctor puts it, Ten being the one that regrets, and Eleven being the one that forgets. He needed to forget in order to keep going. But that's already digging a little deeper into what regeneration actually means for the Doctor, isn't it? Death is literal transformation, and the Doctor dies in order to transform into a new version that can carry all this weight. Except now, that just isn't an option for them anymore. I like that you brought up Unit because it's very clear that he, as you say, when we get to the giggle, he's posturing a little bit, and he understands that they at least need him to be a certain way, Mm -hmm. and it's sort of communicated through the way Kate Lethbridge comes over and just embraces him in that full-on bear hug we'd be like thank god you're here can you please help us fix this because we've been waiting for permission we've Mm -hmm. we've been waiting for permission we've been waiting for permission and just like standing like sitting there kate's like this is the part where you save the day Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely like it obviously it culminates in the giggle but what you were just saying a moment ago about that the doctor can't stop because of all of the things that he has to be juggling and taking care of. That is central to why it's this face that he comes back to and why it's Donna that he comes back to, because that is one of the very first things that we learn about Donna and is central to season four arc, is she is the one that tells the doctor to stop. And obviously it has a different context here, but... But the resonance is very similar. Yeah. I mean, Davies really knows how to do that really well as a writer, in my opinion, really to find mm-hmm. symmetry and like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, he clearly cares a great deal. Like the number of callbacks in these three specials to previous stuff that he's done, like you already mentioned, like the, the comics and everything like that, but just like, I don't know if anyone outside of Davies ever did anything with like the shadow proclamation. And that was a, that that was a, yeah, exactly. That was a component of right there in the very first episode with Rose. uh, And he brings that back as like the, the big courtroom scene for the star beast and everything like that. Even pulling out a barrister wig, all of the fourth (laughs) uh, Tom Baker. Like you do. Um, And one does. Yes. And your time Lord. Like, I'm sure that there's other uh, references in there. Probably plenty that I missed because I just don't know. Probably plenty I missed, too. And and Doctor and everything like that. I didn't miss any. One of the great (laughs) moments in this particular episode where it's like, oh, he got the wrong Donna. How are we going to figure this out? We can see very briefly where we realize that the Doctor wasn't sure that he got it right. But right before he confronts not Donna... He has an image up on the screen that shows that it's measuring the length of Donna's arm because you can yep. see the bone. Yep. I'm just like, oh, I didn't yep. catch that the first time. That's <laughs> yeah, the do- uh, yeah, so much attention. Davies likes to have r- little minute freeze frame bonuses like that mm-hmm. in his stuff. I'd love it. I think I agree with Jesse that while Blue Yonder only improves on rewatching, 
because only after you've seen the full arc of the story and you go back to the beginning do you appreciate that the very first clue that something is wrong on board the ship is that the doctor and Donna are evenly matched in that they can't stop talking. So when one of them stops talking for a long enough period of time, that means something. But even before we get the split scene where Donna is alone and the doctor comes in and then the doctor is alone and Donna comes in, just seeing the doctor watching Donna and we think to ourselves, okay, maybe he's just reminiscing. Maybe he's just glad to have her back. But it goes on long enough without him talking that we start to wonder, and then the scene changes, and we realize, oh, mm-hmm. oh, something. My arms are too here. long. <laughs> uh, that was a, that's a great line right there. I know. Uh, just at first, I was uh, you know, I though my arms are too long, and Donna's first, I'm like, yeah, as this tall, skinny guy, yeah, that tracks. Okay, and then <laughs> and then he says it again. I'm like, wait, something's up here. Holy <laughs> shit! And and then on subsequent viewings, I'm like, that's just wrong. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. just that delivery just. It's, it's it's really unsettling. It's it's kind of like the usual suspects in a way where like you see you, like you see certain aspects of Kevin Spacey's performance in that movie a certain way on your first viewing of that movie, and then after when you're seeing it on subsequent viewings after seeing the reveal, it takes on a whole different layer. And that just reminds me of how much I used to love the usual suspects and has been ruined by one two punch of Brian Singer and Kevin Spacey. Moving on, I also really like two other things about how this episode plays out. First of all, the conversation with the no things and how they say they're here to, quote unquote, play your vicious games and win. That's a call forward to why it is that the use of the superstition brings the celestial toy maker into our world. Our universe, really, because he's from a whole other right together exactly but also when they're questioning the no things about why it is that they're so hateful and their assertion that hate travels faster and further than love does as as not donna puts it love letters don't travel very far like i would say that love and hate are equally powerful things but you know it's sort of in a very um one could almost say it's sort of a, a light side, dark side metaphor. The, the darker emotions always feel more powerful. And that's almost like, I don't know if Davies intended this, but remember how at one point Donna asks, why can't we see the light from stars? And 14 is just like, it's out that way. It hasn't reached us yet. The light, the goodness has not reached the edge of the universe. All that's here is the darkness right kind of adds a kind of lovecraftian horror aspect mm. to the story a little bit if you think about it the no things are kind of lovecraftian yeah, in a way they are but in a way they kind of also deconstruct the notion of lovecraftian creatures and that instead of like donna and the doctor going mad because they can't comprehend these things mm. it's the creatures themselves that are struggling to comprehend them in a way i guess if that makes any sense through their own madness yeah exactly I mean, that does make a certain, because the whole idea of... So it's like of, an inversion. Yeah. The whole idea of Lovecraftian is that there is a difference of not just lived experience, but like the way they experience reality 
that is so very different, which is why the two things cannot, should not mesh. Um, um, but the added layer of like the no things being attracted to not simply humanity, but like humanoid sentience. I don't know what you'd call it because there are so many living things in the universe in doc in the Doctor Hugh universe even that aren't necessarily humanoid but would still qualify as alive. That I think humanoid sentience is a good way to put it. Honestly, okay, that sounds it's like, like a valid way of classifying it. Anyway, if you are nothing and you have a mass of something over here, that is already going to be an alien experience. Like to a certain extent, it's almost like if they are empty, then they want to go to where something is and incorporate that something into themselves to be whole, which is works with the metaphor of them becoming of them, not just imitating the doctor, but attempting to imitate the, uh, the captain as well uh, right. in order to gain solidity in order to gain presence in this universe. Because prior to all of those scenes, the only indication we have of the no things that there's, there is something ephemeral around that is watching the two of them until they take solid form. I think it's possible that this episode might be my favorite of the three, if only because it tackles bigger ideas that are not specific to the Hooniverse, but are intrinsic to epistemology and ontology and even physics to an extent. Nature abhors a vacuum and the not-things are a vacuum on multiple levels, sucking in what they find, becoming it, and having no intrinsic morality to hold them back, only wanting to consume more, to fill a void that has no bottom. It also kind of justifies uh, why the TARDIS decided to use the hostile action displacement system to materialize right away, because it's implied in, uh, and outright stated in some episodes that the TARDIS herself is sentient. So right. mm. imagine if those things, they tried to comprehend that thing. Oh, man. Yeah, no, I don't. No, actually, that's an that's an excellent point. If they can, in theory, <laughs> imitate anything. Oh, God, you don't want them imitating the TARDIS. That's too much God, power. No. <laughs> God, no. <laughs> it's a, so it makes perfect sense that they that the TARDIS would just immediately, as Donna put it, run away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. There is another element to what the TARDIS does um, that we'll get more into as we culminate uh, with the third special. But any more thoughts on Wild Blue Yonder? Just really great atmosphere. Also, mm. just I love the I love that the countdown is as we discover later in the episode is actually in an alien language mm -hmm. because the TARDIS isn't around to translate it. I loved that detail. The, the, the whole thing was like I know billions of languages, and it's like ending yeah. in like five hundred and two yeah. or something like that, or something like that. This I also love the design of the little robot. It kind of reminds me mm -hmm. of Marvin the Depressed Robot from Hitchhikers a little bit. Very Douglas Adams design choice yeah. there even though its purpose is nowhere near mm. what Marvin is, but still it's a nice little, it's just a nice little bit of little robot buddy. Sort of. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I love a good robot. It's like yeah. a little robot buddy like that. What can I say? I think, what was it? At one point someone <laughs> says, Come on. Where have you been? Says I lost on What's happened? I don't know. The usual. Robots chases waterfalls. Oh, okay. 
robots are just like one of those things. It's a recurring thing in some form in Doctor <laughs> Who. So in any genre sure. show, really, if you think yeah, about it. almost any genre show, yeah. but whimsical robots are very Doctor Who and also very Douglas Adams. Mm. So, I mean, Douglas Adams was a script editor on the show, so he had his influence there. So, oh, okay. yeah, dur- during Tom Baker's era. Jesse, any other thoughts from you? Not so much. I kind of already touched on it uh, before, but I would like to have seen the fact that like that that through line of like the doctor being tired and worn out. I would have mm. liked to have seen them do more with that mm. um, this time. For example, like maybe he could have made a mistake because mm. he was tired or he he missed something and you know donna had to save him from it or you know mm-hmm. donna had to kind of pick up the slack a little bit yeah. and let him you know kind of see that this is becoming a problem as opposed to just sort of mentioning it again like kind mm-hmm. of re- reinforcing it but i would have liked to have seen them do more with that piece which mm-hmm. will be like even expounded and 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 more so in the third one but it it would have been nice to see like we've hinted at it a little bit we're going to reinforce it we're going to show why it's a problem here and then you know in in this one and then in the next one you know it'll get out of hand and we'll have to finally address it mm-hmm. that makes sense part of me feels like the star beast already has that moment where he literally needs to reawaken the doctor donna in order to save the day thereby putting someone at risk because he was too slow but I like Jesse's idea here because the implication is that only the Doctor can do it, and Donna alone cannot. And I prefer stories that elevate the agency of the normally less powerful companions, even if it's something as simple as that first episode with Rose Tyler, able to save the day because she's a bit athletic, and free to act where the Doctor cannot. I also want to highlight that, based on everything he's done since... Doctor Who, it's understandable to associate David Tennant as more of a dramatic actor than comedic. And of course, Catherine Tate uh, cut her chops being a comedic actress, but turned in some very intense non-comedic performances in Doctor Who. Absolutely. Uh, But the energy of the two of them playing the no things, like Tennant in particular, be like, oh yeah, there's a reason they picked him to be Zebediah Kilgrave in Jessica Jones. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, right. But they even had him use his same the same accent. Yeah, but at the same time, some of the performances by not Donna. We could hear your lives of war, and blood and fury and hate. They made us like this. We are more than that. Love letters don't travel very far. And neither do your lives. Particularly that moment where she's melting. All those years, I missed you. (laughs) I just couldn't keep it together. You are so amazing. We stare at that universe so far away. You have owned it. You are such a prize. What are you? And I'm just like, <laughs> oh, holy shit. I know. 
I've met that woman twice and she's a delight in person and she has got similar energy, but not as mean spirited. Thank God. Nice. <laughs> I, I'm envious. <laughs> I, sorry. <laughs> it's perfectly okay. Um, I'm a little sad. It amused me that Donna's like go-to for alien, especially pre, um, you know, pre reawakening in the first episode is Mars. Mm. Um, and she's like, we've got a Martian here in our in our yard and all that. I I really wish that at some point in these three specials, she had said the words or somebody had said the words pop on down from Mars, which was one of the jokes that that Catherine Tate made in her like comedy special, like her like skit show when mm. David Tennant guested before she was a companion. He yeah. came on. They were like high school students, and well, no, she he was, was the high school professor, and she was and like they, uh, and they one were of students. her characters who was this yeah. very obnoxious high school student, right? The problem problem childs, and and she's yeah. like she she saw David Tennant and was like, oh, that's Doctor Who, and she's like, are you the doctor? Are you the doctor? He's like, no, I'm the teacher. She's like, are you the doctor? Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? Did you just pop on back from Mars? And <laughs> uh, yeah, it it's it's a really fun skit. It's a great I, skit. I love she, it. And she kept talking about Mars, and I was like, when is she going to say pop on down from Mars? And uh, she never did, and that made mm. me sad. And also, I think the whole, like, she, we've got a Martian in the shed or something, I thought I thought was a callback to The Runaway Bride, where they first met, where she keeps calling the Doctor a Martian until finally the Doctor is like, I'm not from Mars! And That'll do us for today, and I think Jesse and Kevin have basically picked what we're going to end on. Part 2 will come out in another two weeks, where we finish our look at the 14th Doctor specials. Until next time... The one and only, Miss Catherine Tate! Look here! I thought we needed got double English. English is well dry. I don't see what's so great about reading anyways. Nah, reading's for losers! <laughs> in it though. At least we got a new teacher today. Yeah, right, that'll be a laugh, won't it? Morning. All right. As I'm sure you're aware, my name is Mr. Logan. I'm your new English teacher. Nice to meet you all. Hope you're all ready to get to grips with some Elizabethan literature. Let's all turn to page 53 in our poetry textbooks. I think we'll dive straight in with the bard himself. Sir? Yeah. Are you English, sir? No, I'm Scottish. So you ain't English, then? No, I'm British. So you ain't English, then? No, I'm not, but as you can see, I do speak English. But I can't understand what you're saying, sir. Well, clearly you can. Sorry, are you talking Scottish now? No, I'm talking English. Right. Don't sound like it. OK, whatever you want. No! Let's get on with Shakespeare. I don't think you're qualified to teach us English. I am perfectly qualified to teach English. I don't think you are, though. You don't have to be English to teach it. Right. Have we got double English or double Scottish? <laughs> Is your name Lauren Cooper, by any chance? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Why? Your reputation precedes you. Any though? <laughs> so, Shakespeare's sonnets. Sir? A sonnet is a poem. Sir. Written in 14 Sir. lines, the last two of Sir. which 
must form a Sir? rhyming couplet. Sir? Yes, Lauren? Can I ask you a question? Not just now. Can I ask you a question, though? Just wait. But can I just ask you a question? I only want to ask you a question. Can I ask you a question? I'm just asking you a question. Can I ask you a question? <laughs> what is it? Are you the doctor? <laughs> Doctor Who. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. You look like Doctor Who, though. I'm not Doctor Who, I'm your English teacher. I don't think you are, though. Lauren. I think you're a 945-year-old Time Lord. Listen. <laughs> Did you just pitch up from Mars? Don't be ridiculous. You know your house, right? What? You know your house? Yeah. Is it bigger on the inside? You'll be quiet. If you park the TARDIS on a meter. <laughs> Can we please get back to Shakespeare? Thank you. So... Do you fancy Billy Piper, sir? Right. <laughs> you are the most insolent child I've ever had the misfortune to teach. Thank you. You're pointless, repetitious and extremely dull. A bit like Shakespeare. You're not even worthy to mention his name. William, Shake William Shakespeare was a genius. You, little madam, are definitely not. Now just sit there, keep your mouth shut, or I will feel you in this whole module right now. <laughs> I missed a bothered. <laughs> I missed a bothered for sooth. Lauren. Look if at my face. I don't... Look if at my face. Stop it. Is this the bothered face that sees before me? Right, I'm calling your parents. Are you disrespecting the house of Cooper? <laughs> Art thou calling my mother a pox-ridden wench? No. Art thou calling my father a goodly rotten apple? Lauren. But he ain't even a goodly rotten apple. Listen to me. But he ain't even a goodly rotten apple, That's though. enough. Face it. Lauren. Bothered. Lauren. Lauren. Look it. Enough. Look it. <laughs> My liege, my liege, my liege, my liege, my liege, my liege, my Shakespeare's sonnets ain't even bothered. My mystery sighs are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hair be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damask red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfume is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music have a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress when she walks treads on the ground. And yet by heaven I think my love as rare as any she belies with false compare. Bite me, alien boy! That's better. <laughs> A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. <laughs>